Coach Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. On this episode of Celeb Savant, I'll be speaking to Nick DeCosimo. With over 30 years experience in music and media, Nick has worked on some of the world's biggest editorial lifestyle brands, he currently works for Wasted Talent Media in the position of Global Editorial Director at Mixmag, the world's biggest, longest-standing and most respected electronic music and club culture brand. He has spent the last decade launching Mixmag in numerous locations around the world, including LA, New York, Johannesburg, Mumbai and Goya. Plus helping to relaunch the iconic youth lifestyle magazine, The Face to International Acclaim. A veteran musician, he is also a DJ, producer and vocalist, having released records on labels including Warner Music Group, Universal Music, Classic Eskimo, Perfecto and a full-length album on Atlantic Records. Nick is also a co-founder of the lauded SXM Festival, a boutique electronic music event on the Caribbean island of St. Martin. This is Celeb Savant with Nick DeCosimo. Hey, so this is Celeb Savant, Barrett Edelstein, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing or chatting with Nick DeCosimo. Nick, how are you? How's your life? Where do we find you today? Uh, I'm great. I am here in uh, Johannesburg. Um, after a, I've been here for almost three months with work, and uh, the sun is shining, and yeah, I'm, I'm leaving in five days, which I'm a little sad about because I, I love south africa and i love being in uh in joburg but yeah i mean i'm in good spirits and um looking forward to the to the next challenge and the next little adventure in my strange and twisted <laughs> complicated life <laughs> so for the listening audience i met nick at in the golden circle at the johnny clegg concert for our international listeners who may not know Johnny Clegg. He was a very famous South African artist. He passed away a few years ago and it was a tribute concert to him and his music and his legacy. So Nick and I were just standing there and we started chatting like I do with loads of people. And now he's here and I'm interviewing him. So Nick, there are three areas I'd like to focus on. First of all, music career. Tell us more about that. Well, just uh, to step back a bit, I guess I've worked in kind of music and media my whole life pretty much i started djing like age 14 at school parties i used to play in school bands uh you know all of this kind of stuff i grew up in the northeast of england in the uk uh and then i went on i went to college and university in scotland so that was kind of my my background uh and i was always interested in music uh i used to put on parties used to promote nights it's kind of how i paid my way through university and alongside that i did a i was doing a degree in english literature so i was interested in writing and i actually went on to kind of have a career in journalism in like music journalism and lifestyle journalism my current main gig, I guess, is my 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 main job is global editorial director of Mixmag, which was uh, Mixmag was one of the first electronic music, dance music, DJ culture magazines. It was launched in the eighties. Um, I used to read it religiously as like a young kind of raver, you know, in the in in the nineties. And um, yeah, so I went through university. I studied. I, I I was very lucky to get a job at like a pop magazine when I when I. Um, graduated but I always made music as a hobby I was DJing producing um I was singing and um I was lucky enough to go to school with a musical genius a guy called Anu Pillai who is was one of my best friends and we were in a school band together and over time he kind of like forged a career in music and I started to guests like just you know he was we were in a band together at school I was Mm -hmm. a singer He's like, Nick, I need a vocalist. You know, do you want to come in? And we just did some stuff like informally. This is like when I first, I ended by this point, I'd moved to London and I was like living and working in London on sort of different kind of lifestyle magazines and did music as a hobby. But Anna was just incredibly talented. So and we had a bit of kind of chemistry and I guess I, I got lucky enough to kind of ride his coattails and we released on some very cool underground electronic music labels, one label in, in particular, which was called Classic. And I sang on a few of these tracks, did some guest vocals, we did some remixes, and it kind of grew. And mm-hmm. uh, and then we got signed to Warner Brothers, like, it's almost kind of out of the blue. This is in, like, early 2000s. Okay. So I was living, I was still working as a music journalist at the same time. 
So I had this bizarre double life where I was sort of in this band. The band had expanded. There was like two or three singers. We were, I don't know, what were we? We were kind of quite ahead of our time. It was very eclectic, electronic, kind of multi-race, uh, you know, quite sort of gender fluid. A bit like, I don't know, we got compared to the Scissor Sisters, I guess. But okay. we were we like more and a slightly less pop. And yeah, we made... Um, we made this, well, Anu made this amazing album that I was lucky enough to sing on a few a few songs. And um, yeah, and at the same time, I was working as like a music and fashion journalist. It was a very, I look back, it was a very bizarre time. I was still pretty young. I was only like 28. Um, I was working, I was working on a couple of men's magazines. I was doing stuff like, like I did Beyonce's first cover after she split from Destiny's Child or and I did oh, wow. covers like Shakira's first European cover. I used to go and book the covers and then kind of art direct them. And then at the same time, I'm in this sort of weird like underground electronic music act. So in retrospect, it was quite it was quite crazy, actually. I was like 26, 27. I'd be flying to L.A. one week to meet with like bloody jennifer lopez's agent and then i come back to be like doing tours and like these grotty kind of flea pits and yeah so we went through the major label system released the album i got some amazing opportunities i got i worked with vince clark who obviously started depeche mode in yazoo and erasure and was like literally my all-time childhood hero so i co-wrote and sang on a song um written by uh, written and co-produced by him, Anu, and Martin Ware, who was the founder of Heaven 17, also yep. like a electronic music legend. Weirdly, I was at, I was at college with Snow Patrol, the indie band. <laughs> we were friends. This is so funny. Like, these are all just mates. And it's funny how these things happen in life. Gary and I, Gary, the lead singer, obviously were very, very close um, at university and afterwards. So he co-wrote a song that I sang um, uh, on, on the album. Uh, and then like just a bunch of other people. That album was amazing. There were all kinds of just like, and he just brought together this kind of amazing kind of um, Jamaican uh, raga, a dance hall MC called Bounty Killer, who's like legendary yep. kind of like dance hall. Yep. Um, who else? Oh, goodness me. There was a, I, I, Jimmy Douglas, who was like this, legendary um mix engineer who'd done all kinds of he used to work with pharrell i think he did the rolling stones at one point bunch of people i was just this kid that got thrown into this exciting adventure and we ended up releasing uh, and i was a bit player in it listen i just felt lucky to like you know to get to kind of even just sing on these any of these yeah. songs and get to work with some of these people and the album ended up coming out on atlantic records because warner brothers had just re-released it and um this was like I don't know, early, goodness me, this is like early 2000s. And long story short, it just didn't go very well with the major label. And we went through the ringer and ups and downs. And it was like, it was at a time, especially in UK music, where electronic music and dance music was in a bit of a, a dip. Yeah. You know, social media hadn't really taken off. It was hard to, to promote, if you were part of a subculture or a niche thing, it was a little more difficult to promote. You had to have backing from Radio 1. There were a lot of politics. Yeah. We were in this major label system where we'd gone from like quite sort of light fleet of foot sort of um, independence. So we got lost a little bit in there. And also as well, I think Anu made this, I listened to the album again. The album is called Strangest Things by a band called Freeform 5. I'd recommend people go and check it. I listened again, I played a small part on it, but I listened to it again and like, it's a masterpiece. What Like what he did was just absolutely incredible to bring all these different elements together. But I think we found ourselves, it divided opinion when it came out. We'd come from quite an underground club background. And people in, in that world, especially back then, they knew what they liked and what they thought was cool and what wasn't cool. Yeah. And then we came up with this album that was like, it was kind of like a very cool pop album, but it wasn't pop enough for the pop people. And it wasn't underground enough yeah. for the under. And it fell somewhere in the middle. Add into that the fact that, you know, like, I remember we were, God, who were our label mate? Like, James Blunt was the biggest um, artist on Warner Brothers at that time. Okay. Don't get me wrong. James Blunt's an absolute legend. I don't know if you follow his Twitter account mm. or whatever. I mean, he's hilarious. I've seen him in concert. He's amazing. And he's, he's amazing. So, he's hysterical. But, but let's be honest, you know, the music well, you know, was pretty sort of wet, like indie ballady type yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, Snow Patrol were huge. Uh, like the kooks you know it was a lot of like indie guitar the darkness were our other again who we were a brilliant fun band but we were in this 
place of like this quite cool, slightly complex sort of crossover pop electronic, don't really know what it was, uncategorizable album. And I think just people couldn't kind of, they just couldn't wrap their heads around it. A young Amy Winehouse was also our uh, label mate. She'd just been signed for that album, Frank, which was her very first yes. album where it was pre like the Amy Amy that came afterwards. Yeah. And she was still finding her feet. I think she was, if you see like the, uh, the album artwork for that, she's very manicured and like kind of clean. And I think she was sort of put through the major label system. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she was, she was a label mate at, at, at the time. Funny story I used to do because I kind of navigated these different worlds of, cause I was still working in media at the time. So I was editing fashion magazines and all this sort of stuff. So I used to do, um, as well as like the kind of proper gigs and shows, I used to play like corporate parties or, you know, like, you know, whatever for like a fragrance brand or yeah. whatever, you know, this kind of as stuff. As a DJ. As a DJ. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, cause I love music. It was a paying gig. It was fun. I remember I got booked for this gig in Camden. I think it was like a fragrance or some beauty company. Got booked to do this gig and uh, it was like quite small. It was fun. It was like, okay, Nick, you know, you'll go on. And then, um, oh yeah, then Amy Winehouse is going to come on and sing a few songs. And I was like, fucking Amy Winehouse. I was like, because at this point she just disappeared after that first album. Yeah. Like nobody like seen or heard of her for, I don't know, a long time. And I was like, Amy, Amy Winehouse. I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, so did the DJ set. And was finishing, turned down, and this creature appeared with the hair and the tattoos. And, like, I think it was possibly one of the first, like, it was the first time I'd seen her. I hadn't seen her for over a year or whatever. Yeah. I'd seen her at, like, a Warner Brothers Christmas party or something, you know? Yeah, she just, this creature appeared, of like, with the beehive and the, in the, the, you know, the hot pants and all the tattoos. And like started singing, she had a guitarist and it was a lot of the, you know, that early style and, you know, uh, you know, that she became like renowned for. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, what has happened here, man? This is incredible. So anyway, sorry, that's a little, a little digression. But um, yeah, so I got, I just, I got to live this, you know, I'm working class boy from like a mining town in the northeast of England, uh, came from pretty humble beginnings, but man, I've been lucky to get to do some of the stuff that I got to do. And so I was living in London. The The Warner Brothers experience didn't work particularly well. We got dropped. Um, we got spat out the other end. I was still doing my journalism stuff. I was living in West London, like near to like Labrock Grove and Notting Hill. So near like uh, Psalm Studios where everything from like Grace Jones's, you know, uh, Slave to the Rhythm was mm. recorded there. It's like legendary. So I was living in this area where there was just naturally a massive musical heritage, loads of inc sort of that 90s. It was like a tail end of quite a golden age for that part of London before things start to gravitate a little bit more east. Okay. And yeah, just got to make friends just like by hanging out in pubs and bars and stuff like with some of these like amazing, amazing people. And then our band, Freeform 5, got, we got the album back. It got re-released on its cool German label called Fine, along with all of the remixes. It did quite well. And there was one song in particular, um, which is a remix. I don't know if you've heard of an artist called Milo. I don't know if this guy was big here, but in the early 2000s, he, his album... Oh, you might know, Motherfucker, Gonna Drop the Pressure. Ah, yeah, of course, yes. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So Miles was a friend from Scotland. He sort of re... He kind of restarted the electronic music the dance music scene in the uk on the back of this album it's called destroy rock and roll um and it became huge and we collaborated uh freeform five did a remix of one of his songs which is called muscle car which ended up on the album and then we kind of did this tour together and he did a remix of one of our songs which is called no more conversations which was this like kind of an early electro house kind of big dance floor song anyway basically just took on it grew and grew and grew and grew and it kind of became like one of the for a couple of years like in the early 2000s it was like the biggest dance music song in the world it was quite crazy to see it happen so all of a sudden the phone started ringing again for the band and we started to get booked and we toured australia started we played belgium we went all over europe we we're getting all of these kind of big kind of club gigs again and it was like oh okay right here we go and then um universal uh, picked the record up and signed it 
for like a one-off deal with a view to like doing an album. Yeah. So we were all like, I was like, you know, like, okay, so are we doing this again then? All right. And it was there, it was there that the, the, it was, God, what was the imprint? The imprint was called Apollo. It was headed, headed up by a guy called Matt Jagger, who was this quite mercurial figure in the UK sort of dance music scene. And his, he'd done two previous records. I think one was DJ Mech. And the other one was the re-release. I remember that Elton John song, Are You Ready For Love? Yes. Are you ready? Are yeah. you ready for love? So that was a reissue of a 70s track that he's yeah. done, the, the disco track that he'd done. And... Um, that went to number one, I it, think. The, both, both records on this imprint, Apollo, had gone to number one. And again, everybody at Universal like, you're going to have a number one record, guys. Get ready to be famous. So I was like, okay, well, we'll believe it when we see it. And anyway, long story short, they, they fucked it up. <laughs> How? There was some back and forth with Radio 1. There was some stuff going on with the video. There was some internal politics. It, it's, it's the music industry, man. You know, how do you, you know, it, it just, it didn't happen. And like, we were like number 20 or something like that. So then 20 we got, is still good. Yeah, I mean, it's not as good as number one. So we, um, so we got dropped again. And at this point, I was like, Anu was just like, I'm going to take some time off. I mean, Anu has gone on to be a very, very successful music producer. He's produced, he did, wrote and co-produced, you know, Luis Capaldi? You know, yeah, of course he, he is. Uh, yeah. So he wrote, wrote and co-produced half of, a lot of the big hits, I think, from, um, I'm not sure if it's the first or second album, does stuff with Roisin Murphy, Little Boots, like, a, but he's, he's a genius, you know? So, but he was like, I need to rest. And I was still, I still had my, um, I was editing a fashion magazine at the time, and literally in the same week, the same week I was getting dropped by Universal, the fashion mag got closed down, and I got made redundant. And I was like sat at home twiddling my thumbs, going, "Oh, okay, all right, is this I'm all, well? I've had a good run of luck, maybe like you know." And um, I was temping, I was helping my friend uh, was editing a men's fashion magazine called Arena, and I was sat there sort of licking my wounds deputizing for him he'd just be made editor of editor of arena and he was like he's like you know nick he's like you know mix mag are looking for a editor this is 2007 and i swear to god i was like fuck off i was like i was gonna be on the cover of mix mag two months ago so i was like i kind of i guess i saw it as a bit of a step down he's like nick you do two things you make dance music and you edit uh you edit magazines you should go and speak to them yeah I was like, yeah. So I sent an email and I think they'd already just about appointed like a new editor and literally the, the managing director, Jerry, he called me in and we had a, like a 20 minute chat and he was like, look, if you want the job, it's yours. So, I was so like, what happened to the other person? Uh, I never found out who it was, but I think it was somebody on my team. And over time I earned his respect and we became very, very good friends. And he also, but he went on to become a pretty successful music producer as well. Okay. So... Yeah, so and then I started like literally a week later. So just going back to the music, it's similar to the way David Guetta and all these other DJs are doing their music now. Kygo, you know, collaborating mm. with different artists. Do you think that you guys were before the time? I mean, okay. So first, I mean, there's a few things. I, I firstly, again, I can't, I can't overestimate my contribution to this because my friend Anu, it really, kind of his project, and and I was the, the guest vocalist helped a bit with like ideas for production and whatnot so that's the first thing secondly i think you know collaboration has always been a big part of dance music since its birth yeah so if you go back to like chicago house or whatever you know a lot of it was all guest vocals you know loads of collaborations with a lot of gospel swingers from the you know from the american church or different players so i think the collaboration aspect has been in the DNA of dance music from the start, I guess because of just how the how the music is made as well. It's not it, it, it's rare. I mean, you do have like now bands who also collaborate and make dance music, but when when dance music really really kind of took off, so like the mid eighties onwards, you know, it was like solo or producers or production duos who worked in a studio. Yeah, they made the tracks. Whoever it is, Frankie Knuckles, Masters at Work. David Morales, you know, all of these kind of classic American house music names. Um, <clears throat> they would make the tracks and then, then they would bring a vocalist in yeah. or maybe they'd bring a bass player in to do a bass session or so. It wasn't a band in a room 
coming up with you know in the way that like the Beatles or whatever or Earth Wind and Fire I don't know mate would would kind of produce their music so I think that that spirit of collaboration has always been like a key part of the culture I think Freeform Five were ahead of our time for a UK act anyway because what Anu did quite marvelously was contribute a lot um, combine a lot of live instrumentation with electronic stuff and programming which wasn't happening quite yeah. so much especially not in the UK you had acts like Masters at Work uh, Mondo Grosso different sort of uh, acts like American or Japanese acts in the 90s were doing it but it wasn't really happening so much in, in the UK so I think from that perspective without a doubt like Anu was definitely ahead of his time but in the beginning they mm. would collaborate with lesser known artists mm. whereas when I think David Guetta was the first one to start with you know well he did the stuff with Will I Am yeah which, which was which was big uh, I mean I wouldn't you know there were I think I think what happened I mean listen David's been obviously David became huge you know um, he's a he's a bit of a divisive character in the in the dance music world because people you know you know he's sold out or he's too big or a nicer fellow you'd never meet he's an absolute yeah. absolute sweetheart and you have to give him credit and respect for what he's done and what he's achieved it's pretty mad the length and breadth of his career is is quite astonishing I think what happened was he was there when American hip hop finally started to take music notice of dance music so this is like mid mid noughties i guess will i am from the black eyed peas jumped on it then all of a sudden you had you know good and bad like crossover tracks where american previously either hip-hop rap or r&b artists were collaborating with european mainly like electro kind of house slightly yeah. you know it was it was slightly on the more commercial side of it and you had this new kind of hybrid sound, which became, I mean, it was, you know, it was huge for a long time, you know. I mean, it brought what you would call European dance music to, an until then, a new kind of, you know, kind of black American audience. Or not the audience, or lovers yeah. of like, you know, black Americans, uh, hip hop, R&B, um, you know, and rap music. I mean, of course, the irony is house music and, and Detroit techno were created in the U.S., but there was seen as it was niche music. It never, re, you know, it was big in New York. It was big in Detroit. It was big in LA. Chicago, it was big in New well. York. Chica yeah, well, Chicago is where house music was born. Yeah. House music, but it was a, it was quite a, a gay, black, niche, uh, underground kind of movement. It wasn't until we call it like the EDM explosion happened, and the music came back to the US from Europe in many forms. But your average American punter. Has no a lot of them had no idea, you know. They just thought, oh, well, techno is a techno is a it's a white German yeah. European thing, or Dutch, yeah, <clears throat> or Dutch, <clears throat> which is irony. And that, and this led to I mean, it's led to quite a lot of conflict actually because I think because I'm a bit older and obviously I grew up with it, so I just assumed that, like, well, of course, house music is black gay American musical. Of course, Detroit techno is was created by you know a niche underground scene of like black visionaries yeah. in, in Detroit but you know if you're a 15 year old kid from Antwerp or a 15 year old kid from Kansas and you're only hearing it then you, you might not have that perspective so there was quite um it was during the, the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff you know there was quite a lot of friction there wasn't a recognition amongst along with the new fans about what the history of this this was and a lot of black artists were like justify be pretty pissed off about it yeah so it's interesting so my job at Mixmag, when I became editor, obviously, like I said, Mixmag was like the, the Bible for all of this kind of stuff. And we'd been telling these stories. I remember reading these stories in the 90s. That was, it was all about black America, house, gospel. You know, that was where this sound came from. So it was always in my DNA. But again, if you come through the, the pipeline through social media or what, what everything else, or you're not as passionate about it, you might not, you might not know about it. So we actually, at Mixmag and quite other, a lot of other publications, kind of went on a bit of an education mission to kind of re-educate a lot of the new fans about the history of this music and sort of you know where it where it fits in and that yep. was part of the wider narrative about you know the black lives matter and movement and telling some of these stories that i guess someone like me this is my bad it just made the assumption of thinking well of course people should know this so we we made a concerted effort to at least try and shine a, a spotlight on some of that historical stuff uh, which we still do. I think it's it's spearheaded now. I mean, my role at Mixed Mag is a bit more, 
I'm like the mad uncle who gets to travel the world and do these like event series and meet amazing people. But I've got a very, a great team of pretty, um, very conscious and kind of motivated younger staff members who are incredibly thoughtful, actually. I, I really, uh, it's great to get to sort of talk to them and get their perspectives on stuff. Because I'm in my late 40s now. So and I'm, I get to travel, I get to meet amazing people. But, you know, you obviously... You, there's a, still a bit of a distance between that and maybe your core demographic. So it's good to have input from those guys. Not, none of this music is created in a vacuum, you know, and the Chicago House is a specific sound with a specific history, uh, with specific players that help contribute to that. But obviously they were influenced by Kraftwerk or they were influenced by a lot of the new romantic acts, Depeche Mode, uh, a lot of the European kind of synth acts, but they were also influenced by the legacy of disco and soul yeah. music. And the church, you know. Um, so, but then everything, all of that came together at this beautiful time and a place where there was, you know, there was a mainly black, Hispanic, gay, hedonistic culture. The the, the technology, uh, the entry level for price came down to a certain level that it meant that more people could afford the basic equipment. Okay. And then... If that makes sense, right? Because yeah. that's if you look previous to that, you know, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars for even a basic, like a, a Fairlight synthesizer, for example, in the early 80s would cost half a million quid and only the petrol boys could use it or whatever. So the entry level came down. And then also you had literally some of the best singers in the world for, that grew up in the gospel church in the US. Then that music found its way to Ibiza and to Europe and to London and that's where it exploded. It never blew up in America, in America yeah. at that point. I remember going to see the likes of Frankie Knuckles, Tony Humphreys, um, DJ Pierre, Felix the Housecat, all of these like iconic legendary names who were flying to Europe and to get paid. I mean, you know, and they were like, they were part of this mad scene that went from maybe 200 people in 1987 to 20,000 people in a field raving in 1988. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously the sound developed, it kind of, you know, it combination in the UK of this new music, house music, this new drug, or not new drug, but this ecstasy and this kind of new style and fashion with the smiley faces. And, and that's where rave culture was, was born. I mean, again, it fractured and then it went off in all of these different directions. directions so yeah. Hardcore, jungle, drum and bass, um, you know, acid house, I guess, was the is what they call it. But a lot of the, I know a lot of the American originators of this of the sound of what they call it, they were horrified because they were all, they were all some of them were quite religious. Yeah. A lot of them just didn't do drugs at all, and then um, they landed in like a field in southern England with like twenty thousand Cockney kids off their faces, like dancing, dressed up, or- dressed up in these bright colours, and like you know, I remember them just saying, "Like, what the hell is is this?" You know. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about your role at Mixmag. Ooh. What does that in- entail? Basically, I became so Mixmag. Like I said, was the first. It was the first kind of DJ culture magazine. Uh, it was launched in was it eighty three or eighty four? I'm going to say eighty four but possibly 83. Uh, Shalimar were the first cover stars, which I'm pretty happy about because they're cool. And it was launched by a chap called Tony Prince, who was this kind of legendary... Have you heard of the DMC Mixing Championships, the DJ Mixing Championships? So he founded DMC and he used to do that and he was um, a radio DJ. He was a big advocate of like early soul music and disco music uh, getting played in the UK he mentored like Pete Tong and like a lot of other but like legendary character it was a Tony launched it as like a free sheet for kind of like um mobile DJs and it was a free sheet and it basically you know it was pre-internet social media so it connected DJs and they could write and ask, ask questions and you know they'd in the early days they do stuff like you know like have like a write an article about is it access is it acceptable to talk on the mic between records and all of this kind of stuff it's brilliant but it was very much also championing like what was left of disco, this new like electronic music, black soul music. Um, Carl Cox used to contribute, you know, he was a, he was a soul DJ like back in the late seventies and early, early eighties. And then it sort of, it took off. And then when the acid house thing happened, 
it became like the voice of the dance floor, basically. And in the 90s, it was like a super, super big deal. Everybody from, you know, Fatboy Slim, Carl Cox, the Chemical Brothers, Underworld, like all of those seminal, Sasha, like 90s sort of big kind of dance music, electronic music acts were on the cover. And I became editor in, two, in 2007. You know, if I'm honest, it was not the best time for magazines. Yeah. It was a bit of a difficult time for dance music. We didn't really have a digital presence and a lot of magazines were closing. So yeah, I spent four or five years working in London, like basically trying to transfer to being a full like digital business with a website. We started to do events. We started to do early DJ streams. Yeah, we did, um, we launched a thing called the Mix Mag Lab, which is like our weekly DJ streaming show. And basically it started off as... Um, it's quite a cool story, actually. In the 90s, a lot of these big DJs would, um, they'd drop by the Mixmag office on a Friday afternoon before they had a gig, like, later on in London, and they'd just play records for the Mixmag team, just to, like, vibe them up for the weekend. But Mixmag on a Friday afternoon was like, you were so jealous that was the place to be. Like, Norm, like Fatboy Slim would drop in and play some tunes, and they'd be getting the beers in, God knows what else. I was like, okay, we're going to take that idea, but relaunch it for the digital age. And we did the same thing. But then we had a, I said to Jerry, the, the MD, I was like, Jerry, I'm sorry. I'm kicking you out of your office. I'm turning it into a nightclub. He's like, well, I was like, trust me. So uh, we painted this tiny room in the corner of the office. I mean, the first one, we literally had one GoPro. <laughs> that was it. But the first five acts, so the first acts were Orbital. Second one was Fat Boy Slim. We had um, Disclosure, Solomon, Carl uh, Cox. I can't remember that. It was ridiculous. And you can go back, you can find some of these streams online. Like, they're quite funny because it's literally, it was early days of all the technology. It's just yep. like one GoPro. <laughs> audio, quite decent audio. And we'd have like, sometimes, you know, we'd have um, like Rudimental played and we had to go to press with a magazine. It was a problem. And I'm like proofreading pages <laughs> trying to go to press. <laughs> Remember one time there was some MC was just like in the corner. Everybody else is drinking and partying. And normally I'd be there, but sometimes if we had to go to press, we had to go to press. I remember like reading this proof, proofreading this page and like nodding my head. And some MC was like, look at the editor. I shouting over. It's chaos. I mean, it was madness. What a joyous time. So 30, 40 people. Anyway, um, this idea just, it really took off. It got bigger and bigger. And then in 2013, I had an opportunity to go to, to America to launch the Mixmag Lab there and then to launch Mixmag in the, in the US. So I did two years in LA, really massive success. Uh, and then I did four years in New York. So we had an LA office, a New York office. We did the lab in LA, the Mixmag Lab in New York. Bunch of other stuff. Quite, you know, We launched quite, yeah, we had a big um, <clears throat> a bunch of offices, did a lot of activity in America. And then... In early 2019, we'd just done this big, a global deal with Budweiser where we were doing, it was amazing, these, these BudX uh, activations that, yeah. that, that, that they do, which, you know, like hand on heart were true. Like, I mean, they did some spectacular stuff. And I got to like, we did like these BudX Cities events. So we did events in Tokyo and Paris, where else? Ho Chi Minh City, you know, all over the world. And they also loved the Mixmag Lab. And they were like, we'd like to do it in Johannesburg. So I was like, I'd been to South Africa once before because I've known Black Coffee for quite a long time because we, um, I, you know, he did a Mixmag cover like 10 years ago. And obviously you can't work in dance music and not know about the South African music scene. Yeah. And I'd actually came here in, um, oh my goodness, I think 2017. And I'd done, I did an interview. I did a little mini documentary uh, it was a series called The Global Dance Floor. And it was uh, it was like a series of little mini documentaries about like how dance music is, brings people together around the world. It was, was Smirnoff, actually, when they were do, doing a lot. They were doing this equalizing music campaign where they were trying to tell different stories of sort of lesser told narratives and like the positivity of dance floor. Anyway, of dance music. And I interviewed uh, Natty. So I interviewed uh, Black Coffee, DJ Fresh, uh, and Tim White used to run the the record shop that black coffee used to go in as a kid after school oh wow it's amazing yeah yeah so he used to go in a school uniform listen to the i'm um, it's quite a famous it was a famous record store 
and DJ Fresh, obviously, is obviously now a very famous broadcaster. He was a house music DJ. That guy's got charisma, man. I spent like an afternoon with him chatting. What a cat. He's amazing. And him, and I think at this point, dance music, you could only, it was huge. It was becoming, it was mainly imports. You know, there was a South African scene. You had Kwaito and you had your own scenes here, but no internet. Uh, if you wanted to listen to a track, uh, you had to buy vinyl. And, you know, it, it, that came on an import. It was expensive. Anyway, they did this DJ Fresh compilation. It was one of the first CDs that had all of this music on it. And it was ridiculous. It, like, sold 100,000 copies in, like, a week or something. Like, it was this huge, huge success. It was Black Coffee's idea to tell the story about this. I think it was, like, it was called, like, Fresh, DJ Fresh Volume 1. He wanted to tell his story because that was, like, almost the birth of Afro House in a way. Because then it exploded. And obviously he had more and more kids in the townships had access to it and or just like everywhere around the country and again the entry level technology um prices came down and, and and the level of talent that you have in this country is ridiculous anyway so yeah and that was like how it snowballed from there and here we are now with black coffee's the world's biggest dj and blah 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 blah, blah. so anyway so yeah so i had been here once briefly in uh 2017 I'd only been here for a short time. I absolutely loved it. I just had the best time. I think there's, I don't know, man, I, I, there's the Brit thing. There's a, there's a sense of humor thing that's connected. But I just, the food, the music, the people, like I just fell in love with the place. And I had the opportunity to come back again in 2019. So I came and we did a 20-week run uh, for the, the Mixed Mag Lab Johannesburg with, with, with Budweiser. I lived in Melville. It was before the pandemic, like particularly Melville at that time for me, it just seemed like paradise. Like it was this cross-cultural, uh, you know, it was that bustling, you know, the Melville yeah, yeah. strip. And it was just like, and after living, after living in New York and where, look, I love America. I love American culture and everything else, but it's different. And there's a lot of money involved and the, the, the sentiment can be slightly, it's good and bad everywhere, but that constant rat racy, hey, what do you do type thing. Yeah. Coming to Joburg and living in Melville and it was just like the antidote to that. And I was just like, I was like, I could I could spend like forever here. I just loved it. I loved it. So we did like this 20 week run. Then I went back to New York for a bit. Uh, and then the opportunity came to go to Mumbai uh, to do the lab again with Budweiser. And in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm fixing myself up here to... Uh, not have to live in New York anymore, get to live this kind of blessed lifestyle where hopefully I can spend a bit of time in South Africa, a bit of time in India and a bit of time in Europe, you know, in the, in the, not in suicide February in London, like, yeah, you know, yeah. get to London when it's nice for the three weeks of summer that we have, you know, right? When it's not a heat wave. Uh, well, yes, I know. Well, there you go. That's an irony anyway. So yes, yeah, so I went to Mumbai and I did the Mixed Mag Lab there. It was a roaring success. We were building up to like, okay, we're going to come back to South Africa. We're going to do some more stuff in India. This is great. And then in March 2020, I don't know, everybody seemed to catch the flu or something happened. I can't remember exactly what it was, <laughs> but there was something. <laughs> so I found myself in a situation where me and my, uh, my, well, my, my now ex-partner, pandemic stuff anyway, uh, still on good terms though. Hello, Pauls. We went to, we'd taken house in Goa because she was an artist and she, um, she'd lived in Goa on and off. So we had this studio in Goa, beautiful big Portuguese house. Like we rented for a year for like the same price as a bloody one month rent of the place in New York. It was that kind of madness. Yeah. And so we had this safe sanctuary, thank goodness, after literally being on four or five flights a month, flying all over the world, managing offices, literally sat in an, in my loincloth in the jungle in Goa, slowly losing my mind for two years. <laughs> Why do you say losing your mind? Well, not losing my mind. I mean, it was, you know, it was like everybody else. It's like, you know, pandemic, pandemic stories. My board of directors were very kind, you know, to take a big pay cut like everybody. But, and I sat and we worked through it and I worked remotely. Probably worked harder during that time than any other, actually, because it was just, it was stressful. There was a lot of uncertainty. The The pace of life for me was a massive, massive change. It's quite a workaholic, live wire, slightly, you know, borderline mentally ill kind of person anyway, you know, like quite obsessive about stuff. Now I'll just stop, you know. Forcing so, you to stop. Yeah, and which in, in many ways was good actually because it required me to 
just take stock a little bit of like, because I'd been working too hard and I was going to burn out and everything else. But also, like India is, you know, Goa is lovely. It's a, Goa is beautiful. It was a great place to be. It was a big house. It was cheap to live. Like, mm. I'll be forever grateful for the shelter that India gave us during that time. But it can be quite, India can be quite a difficult place to live as well. So when, A, the heat starts getting out of control, can't leave the house, can't go for a swim. I think the other thing is with the pandemic, I think... Everybody had their own thing that they needed to go through. But then I was dealing with stuff like like really bad prickly heat to the point where I was like in agony. And I would spend, I'd get up, my entire time was spent just sat in front of a fan. For like, for like that was for like a month. And then the monsoons came and then shit gets really crazy because these old houses, like we, you normally you pack up your house and you leave for monsoon. So the damp, literally like snakes in the bed monkey. snakes in the bed oh yeah oh yeah monkey snakes snakes in the garden had a couple of snakes woke up with a snake in the bed once it's wild we rode out the pandemic in in um in mumbai uh, sorry in in goa yeah and then i managed to get some stuff going again we did i did some mixed mang events in goa which is like us creeping out of the pandemic and then the opportunity again came with with budweiser god bless them we're like we're restarting activity the Mix Mag Lab uh, collaboration that we did in 2019 is one of the most, the best things we've ever done. Do you want to come back? And I'm like, I was already on the plane. <laughs> I was like, yes. I arrived late March. Yeah, been here. We did a 10-week run. It finishes on Wednesday. It's been amazing. And yeah, hopefully after that we get to do, we're in talks with maybe doing some more, maybe next year, possibly going to do some more in India. But yeah, so this time, yeah, I've had a good almost three months is there still a physical edition of the mix map? We had to suspend the print edition okay. in, the, in the pandemic because it just wasn't viable. So we do, we do digital covers, but we do one-offs as well. So sometimes we'll do a one-off Ibiza special. We'll do around some of the different sort of dance music conferences. But sadly, no, they're, they're, currently there isn't a monthly print edition anymore. However, never say never. Because there, there may be an option to to <clears throat> to relaunch that, but we focus mainly on a lot of video content, website, event stuff. We have 15 offices around the world, so there are print editions in some other territories. There's one in Brazil. Okay. Uh, there's one in Japan. Yeah. So there are some other print editions, but the main UK one is currently on a hiatus. But I can't talk too much about that. But when I go back to London in, I'm um, going back in August. That is one of the things on the agenda. So we'll see. It's interesting for me because Mix Mag is very much niche. And you had these UK magazines like Smash Hits Number One, yeah. which was about the pop music and was targeting what most people were buying. And they folded very quickly. And yet Mix Mag has you know, been carrying on. It's quite amazing, isn't it? I think, you know, underground and like niche kind of fans are more diehard, you know? Yeah. I think also as well that what, you know, what happened for us or what from a business point of view, you know, dance music, electronic music started to get very big globally, particularly in the US. I mean, the explosion here is huge. It's exploding all over Africa, Asia, India. And as the kind of most authentic heritage brand, and I say that truthfully, we were in a good position to be able to do stuff like the Mixmag Lab, which isn't magazine, but it's video content where you go, you know, it's video, it's streamed, it's with the sponsor, we make revenue, but we also get to do great content. I mean, I've been so lucky with the place, you know, I've, I've been, I've got to do, put on these events and meet just the most amazing people in like LA, Miami, Detroit, Paris, London, uh, Sydney, Mumbai, Goa, uh, Johannesburg. You know, it's, um, it's, it's really, again, never take any of this stuff for granted it's really quite amazing but a lot of that is on the back that the back of like you know dance music and dj culture is rapidly becoming now it's not really niche anymore yeah you know i mean a lot of the underground stuff maybe is but black coffee could you know sell out a fifty thousand stadium arena now if you wished yeah he's grammy nominated he's just grammy won. sorry grammy won. Yeah. yes sorry and i uh, just co-produced tracks with drake drake just went behind the decks with them at Black Coffee's uh, show in High in Ibiza. It's a big, big global scene now. So, you know, that's that's been good. Obviously, with the pandemic, that kind of knocked us, knocked everybody sideways a bit, but it's just amazing to see all these events coming back and people traveling again and going to festivals and, yeah. So, like, the Tomorrowlands and those type of festivals? I mean, anything from, yeah, Tomorrowland to 
the smaller niche festivals to Lighthouse Festival. I co-founded a small boutique, like underground house music festival called SXM Festival, which is in the Caribbean. It's like half French, half Dutch uh, island in the Caribbean called St. Martin or St. Martin. Okay. And so we just restarted this year again. And that was like, I mean, again, God, I'm lucky to get to go. That's like, it's just ridiculous. This island's beautiful. People fly in from the US. From There's a lot, it's a big French culture there. So there's a lot of gastronomy. Beautiful and chic French people and very practical Dutch people on the Dutch side, you know? <laughs> and then you guys come along and cause chaos for a couple of days. <clears throat> Basically, yeah. And it's like my partner, Julian, is a French Canadian of like North African descent. And he grew up in Montreal, which is an amazing city very culturally really punches like above its weight and his parents retired there and opened a hotel like a decade ago julian's very big julian prince very big in the dance music world dj kind of entrepreneur ran a bunch of nightclubs and he just had this vision of like because st martin's a little it's not one of these super super upscale you know some barts type mega money type ones yeah. but it's pretty well developed it's got french culture it's it's got a party infrastructure and he was like this could be like the ibiza of the caribbean so that was the mission that we set out on seven years ago and hats off to him he's kind of done it like the the festival this year there was nearly ten thousand people attended when was it uh it was in march okay yeah bear in mind as well this festival as it it went through there was a very very severe hurricane at the end of 2017 hurricane irma oh yeah that's right which literally flattened it just it was terrible it destroyed the island so we went from being a festival to kind of a relief organization and there were the family and the festival were very much involved in the in the re rebuilding effort and had to cancel the 2018 edition and then the 2020 edition happened early march so that festival in 2020 was pretty crazy because a lot of people were already there and oh, then, wow. Yeah. Did but, they get stuck there? Some people got stuck. It was nuts. So the festival, do you have DJs playing sets? Or? Yeah. I mean, Black Coffee's... Everybody, like, it's it's pretty amazing. Check it out. SXM Festival. Everybody, yeah, it's five days, multiple venues in different locations around the around the island. So it's like, it's more like a week in Ibiza than a festival. There's a main festival site. Okay. It's on the beach. Beautiful hidden lagoon jungle um there's no access apart from by foot normally a private road and then there's other venues dotted around the island and people go for a week they have a holiday there so we had like i don't know like black coffees played richie horton Dubfire, nina kravitz uh ricardo villalobos like every big name marco carolla they make a point of playing because it's pretty special yeah this year was especially we did a collaboration with a local steel band and they did like timpani steel pan versions of classic techno tracks oh wow it was incredible yeah and then we work with the um, work with the local community a lot for some community projects and stuff so yeah no it's pretty special so that was that was great to see that and to have that happen again now tell us more about um this organization oh the great oven yes okay uh the great oven is i guess this is my labor of love it's a i won't call it a charity it's like a, we call it it's, it's a social movement basically it was dreamed up by one of my best friends a guy called james thompson who is uh he's quite well known in the uk food world he's a he's a chef he's also a documentary maker um a writer he's partner of a guy called nigel slater who i don't know if how big now but in the uk nigel slater is a very very recognized food author and and cook okay. and he and i had had this idea of um trying to build some kind of movement that comes together with food, music, and art, because they're like, for us, the core principles of like everything that's good about life. And James went and did it. And what we do is we create these giant community ovens. They're beautifully decorated and they act as public works of art, but they can feed 300 people a day. Oh, wow. And around that, he builds uh, the, the staff in the kitchen. Musicians get involved to inspire people while they cook. And obviously there's all these beautiful artworks of how the ovens are decorated. All kinds of people from various marginalized communities, they, they would train and give skills and inspire through the ovens. And then the idea is the ovens act as these focal points of community cohesion, and then they get to open their own restaurants or they start their own business or they're inspired to whatever, whatever it is. So yeah, the organization is called The Great Oven. If you check on Instagram or, on our, or just the website, 
yeah, this is one where I feel I can pull all, the, all of those skills together and actually do something that, that matters. So, and that's great. Your top five favorite songs by other art, by artists. Off the top of your head. Oh my God, you can't ask me that question. Are you out of your mind? I've that's been told, like, yes. Oh, God, it's like asking to pick your favorite child. First five, they come to mind. Okay, the love theme from Spartacus by an artist called Terry Callier. Window Liquor by FX Twin. Riverman by Nick Drake. Two more, two more. Uh, okay, As by Stevie Wonder. Finally, we'll have Finally by CC Penderson. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've got to represent some dance music. That's a little snapshot, but there are so many. I know, oh, that's God. why I love this game. I hate this game. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone hates it, I love it. As a final message to our listening audience, yeah. what do you want to say to them? Thanks for having me and allowing me to, allowing me to, to, to chat. Thanks to South Africa. Uh, I know you're global, but uh, for uh, providing a home again and um, looking forward to coming back. And I guess, what would I say? I guess the main thing is, um, I don't know, I hope some of this has amused you. Maybe it might inspire people, particularly young people, that you, know, you can go out and there are jobs in media and music and there are ways to do this and, and, and feel kind of creatively satisfied i think the most important thing would be please go and check out the great oven we have an instagram page if you just search the great oven on instagram or just search the great oven uh online that truly is my labor of love it's a really really wonderful project and yeah any any support there is well there are donations pages but it's generally just about awareness of the project and yeah Maybe you're a person out there that can help us. Maybe you're based in Colombia or maybe you're based in Lebanon or maybe there's something to do with the organization that chimes. If so, please reach out. And thank you. So this is Celeb Savant signing out.